1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 17 to 21 this evening. So let's read that together, and then I'll open with a prayer. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Lord, we thank You so much for the study this evening. We thank You for the time of learning from Your Word. We thank You for time of singing and learning new songs and uh, just singing with a joyful heart because that's the expression You've given us as Your creatures to give back to You. Uh, Lord, we ask that You would cultivate that heart in us, a praise-filled, joyful spirit, that we would honor You with our lips. And we ask that tonight we would see more reasons for that as we study Your Word and discover things from Your precious Word. Give us great unity and faith and hope and peace because of what You've done in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a statement up here on the board. <laughs> in light of our identity as God's obedient children, through the salvation we have been given in Christ, we are to conduct ourselves in holiness with great reverence during our lifetime. And last week gave you three alliterative statements. Um, what does it look like to be holy as He is holy, to get up each day and to think, okay, I am to worship God with my life. What does that look like? Three basic concepts, daily devotion. We looked at Romans 12 and the Christian life that gets set before each and every one of us. Powerful prayer that we're not to only pray for ourselves, but pray for one another, intercede for one another, to bring one another before the throne. And loving living, prioritizing love, because as we learned together from 1 Corinthians 8 this past Sunday, without love, what do we got? <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Love is more important than knowledge. Love is the heart of the Christian life. And so, as we consider what we've learned so far in 1 Peter 1, we know that God has given us an identity as Christians. It's been given to us. We are God's obedient children, and uh, we were redeemed and adopted by God to conduct ourselves in fear on earth. That's what we're going to see in our passage as we get through it this evening. Um, our whole manner of life must be focused on our relationship to God now that we're Christians. Our relationship to God affects our relationship to everything else, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, it really affects every single thing. And it starts off tonight in verse 17, the beginning of our passage, if you call on Him as Father, and that goes back to our identity, because we are God's children. Our identity is found in the fact that we are children of God. Look back up at verse 3 with me, the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
So it's not just that we're born again in the sense that we're new, but we're born again to have a new father. Our relationship to God changes and that we call on Him personally as Father now. And then what we looked at last week, verse 14, he says, as obedient children. He addresses them as obedient children. That's their status. That's their identity, is they are God's obedient children. That's who we are as Christians. And who gave us that identity? God Himself, right? (laughs) Because our identity has been given to us through the salvation in Christ, the salvation we've been given in Christ. There's a steam engine plowing through the auditorium. (laughs) Oh, right. Oh, yeah, it's a goal. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's okay. What's the score? Are they winning or losing? Are they winning or are they winning or losing? Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Very good. <laughs> well, I'm I'm going to come back to some thoughts that we see in verse 17. Um, I want us to jump down to verse 18. Peter says to these believers, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited. We have been ransomed as Christians. What is that word ransomed or redeemed? Yours might say redeemed. What does that mean? What's the implication there? To be ransomed or redeemed. What does, what does that mean? <laughs> well, yeah, it's a transactional kidnapping, uh, that, which makes it not kidnapping, but um, ownership has changed, right? Um, there were different ways this played out in that culture at that time. People could be purchased from pagan deities. You could go and pay and, and uh, purchase a slave from someone, else's, uh, for someone else by paying off a pagan deity. Uh, so the concept is there in their culture, but the way it's being applied here is that you, as a human being made in the image of God with a soul, you've been purchased by God. He has purchased you, transactionally purchased you, and He owns you now. He's your master. But this begs the question, as we think about this, um, if God purchased us, who was getting paid? You ever thought about that before? Uh, Because the concept is all over in the New Testament. You've been ransomed. You've been redeemed. Uh, Well, but He's not paying Himself when He redeems us. Where were we and where are we, right? Right? Okay, he paid a debt. Okay. Yeah, perhaps. Um, Though there is something objectively deep and real about being purchased, right? I mean, you you were purchased by God. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Yeah, it's the same word that would have been used at that time for that, yeah, that uh, someone's been purchased. Yeah. Well, well, let me inform you about, if you don't know, about a, a theory for the atonement, which we don't believe here and don't teach here, but it was uh, a big theory early on in Christianity in the first couple of centuries. It was one of the main theories of Christ's atonement called the ransom theory of the atonement. We teach and believe 
the Bible clearly teaches, penal substitutionary atonement, meaning Jesus was in our place for our sins, bearing the wrath of God, the penalty we deserved for our sins. That's what he was doing on the cross. That's why he was making a propitiation. He was bearing the penalty, penal, that we deserved, substitution. But the ransom theory of the atonement doesn't place the emphasis on his substitution bearing a penalty for us, but that he was actually purchasing us from Satan, that we belonged to Satan, we belonged to the devil. The devil put up a price, ransom, for us, and it was that Jesus would die on the cross, and he was paying Satan to get us from him. (laughs) Well, um, but there are places in Scripture we have to wrestle with this, right? Like the idea of who got paid when... Because, I mean, you look at the cultural concept, and there were people who were paid. When you bought a slave, you were paying a previous master, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, God didn't owe himself any money, right? Yeah, that's a crazy thought. Yeah, Colossians 2 is very clear. There was a certificate of debt that was nailed to the cross, right? right? Okay. Yeah, it would be very strange to think God paid Satan so that he could get us, huh? There's a, there's a lot of issues you start running into scripturally with that. Um, now, again, th- theories exist for a reason. There are passages you have to wrestle with. Um, every theory that's out there, no matter how wacky it is, there's probably a verse somewhere that there's their launching pad. Usually it's taken out of context, but you just got to address those things, okay? Well, let's see if we can start to wrap our minds around this. Someone uh, volunteer to get Romans 6 for me. I'll tell you the verses when we read them. Who can get Romans 6? We got a few passages here. Sandra, okay. Uh, Logan, you want to get 1 Corinthians 6. So Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 6. Titus 2, Rex. And then uh, right here in 1 Peter, we'll look at some other verses together. So we've got those three, Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 6, and uh, Titus 2. So Sandra, let's look at verses 6 to 18 together. And if you guys can, go ahead and flip over there and read along as she reads this. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 18. So go ahead when you're ready. All right, so as we consider the types of slaves we have been, where were we, where are we, according to Romans 6? We were slaves of, and now we are slaves of. Okay, so there's a very obvious transfer that happened there, right? Um, Colossians goes with this too. um, Colossians 1 or 2, can't remember which chapter. Uh, We've been transferred from the domain of darkness into His marvelous light. Right? So that has taken place, and it's clear in the slave language that's used here, we now have a new master. Sin used to be our master, but now God is our master, and we are to obey in righteousness. 1 Corinthians 6, Logan, verses 17 to 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 to 20. All right, you were bought with a price. There's a clear transaction statement there. You were belonging to another, 
you were belonging to the sinful way of life. In this case, it's particularly talking about sexual immorality. You belonged to that way of life, but you've been purchased from that way of life. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. All right. So, here it is, the language again of being ransomed or being redeemed from all lawlessness. Christ purchased us out of sin to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good deeds. So you have in each of these three passages the idea of we were slaves to sin and now we've been purchased that we may be slaves to righteousness because the Lord is our master. And what we find in the, in the New Testament as we talk about the death of Christ and uh, what that accomplished, what, that was, what the purpose was in that, is we see, we see it talked about from different perspectives. Um, yes, he was bearing our sin on the cross in our place. And yet he was also ransoming us, wasn't he? It's both and. It's a both and thing. And when the authors of the New Testament, and we looked at Paul in three different letters here just now, when he's writing, he's writing with a purpose and he's illustrating the issue by pointing to what Christ has done. Christ didn't die for us so that we would um, be forgiven of all our sins, period. That is true. He died in our place that we'd be forgiven of our sins. And he was purchasing us that we would live a life for him thereafter as his slaves, no longer slaves of sin, but as slaves of Christ. And so to make a whole theology out of it, <laughs> to build all out of it, okay, well, this, he was Making a transaction to the devil, they signed a contract about it would be this many payments over you know, a year or whatever. No, I mean, I mean, that just gets really, really silly. And so we just need to see that the Bible is telling us what Christ was accomplishing, what his purpose was from different perspectives. And to, to take the redeeming idea and build that strange ransom theory out of it does a lot of harm. But let's look again in 1 Peter, a couple other places in the letter, because he uses... Language here throughout the letter talking about Christ's purpose in purchasing us. Chapter 2, verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Drop down to verse 16. Same chapter. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Christ freed us through Christ's death and his purchasing of us. We've been set free. Free from what? Free from sin. Not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. Look at chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh 
has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We were purchased not to go out and live for the sake of our flesh. We were purchased to live for God. In light of our identity as God's obedient children, through the salvation we've been given in Christ, we are to conduct ourselves in holiness with great reverence during our lifetime. That's Peter's big theme throughout the rest of the letter. So sin was our master. Now our master is God. We were slaves to sin. Now we are slaves to righteousness. When we see in verse 18 that we were ransomed, that's the big idea. It's all over the New Testament. We were ransomed for the purpose of living for God. He purchased us that we would no longer serve sin, but he actually broke the chains of sin so that we are able now to actually live for him. That's what he's done. Thoughts or questions on ransoming and redeeming? Yes. So not only he owned us when he made us, we he made us, right? No, he still owns us. He owns every man, yeah. Yeah. And so but he, he brought us back, redeemed us to be his again. Yeah. A second time. Yeah, there's a reconciliation, right? That's the language of Second Corinthians five. The reconciliation now that we have through the sacrifice of Christ, um, which means we were once far off and now we've been brought back. Yep. Andy. Well, there's no verse that says this person was paid. Now, I mean, obviously you pointed out earlier, um, there was a debt to pay. It was a debt we owed to God. We couldn't pay it ourselves, right? This is the gospel message. And so um, God sent his son, and they called him Jesus. Uh, they, uh, <laughs> the son was sent. And he satisfied the law, which we couldn't do. He satisfied the, the weight of the demand. Only he could do it. And so in that sense, God paid what we owed. He did it as a substitution. Um, but the fact remains we were ransomed from the realm of sin, from the realm of darkness. But there was no one there that actually received a payment from God in, in the weird ransom theory sense. Yeah, that, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable because it kind of puts Satan on Yeah, it's, right, it's, right, it's dualism, yeah. right? Yeah. It should make you a lot a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The world kind of looks at that, that way. It's yeah. Like yin-yang thing. That Hades is Satan's domain. Yeah. Yeah. If you read the Bible, he doesn't want to go there either, but he doesn't have a choice. Yeah. Right. Char, did you have a... I was just thinking of a children's story about a little boy that painted a bowl and painted it and said, I love it, and then it got away from him. And he found it later in the shop, and hmm. he came for it. It came there. Hmm. It doesn't completely... Well, all illustrations break down at some point, right? But yeah, yeah, there's the idea we were bought back. Yep. Okay. Um, and what were we purchased with? Well, verse 18 tells us, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ. So gold and silver are just nothing compared to Jesus, right? I love how he says, not with perishable things like gold and silver, the, you know, these things that the world 
desires desperately kill, like the world kills each other for these things. He says, not with those measly things, but with the precious blood of Christ. That word precious meaning something desperately needed or something of high honor, high value. The precious blood of Christ. And of course, this is talking about his death. Not just that he bled. It's not that he received a little cut and his precious blood you know, poured out a little bit and that was enough. It's that he was killed, that he died. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. Very important verse. It's a memory verse for you. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And back in chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. All right, so it's the idea that Christ died for us in our stead. And this totally changes the way we approach life. You see again at the end of verse 17, um, we are to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exiles. Um, the word, or uh, throughout the time of our exile, the word for exile there, if you have the NASB, I think it says stay. Your stay on earth, something like that, NASB users out there. 17, the end of 17? Yeah, your Okay, good, yeah, your stay. It's a word that means uh, like you're a neighbor. Yeah, sorry about that. Chapter 1, verse 17. Throughout your stay on earth or the, throughout the time of your exile, the word for stay or exile, it means you're a neighbor. <laughs> we, this place isn't our home, right? We're living here like strangers, like exiles, like we're actually neighbors to the world because our home is a heavenly home. And so knowing that we've been purchased from Christ out of the realm of this world, we live as exiles, don't we? Because we are not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. Okay? Good, good. Tracking? The end of verse 17? Chapter 1, verse 17? Yep. The passage that we're in tonight, 1 Peter 1, 17. And it says that we are con to conduct ourselves how throughout our time on earth? In verse 17? In reverence or in other translations? Fear. Okay. Conduct yourselves in fear. Because we're to recognize that our Father impartially judges... <laughs> If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear or reverence or reverent fear. I don't know what any other combinations that may be out there throughout the time of your exile. Well, it is a uh, glorious doctrine that God is impartial, right? <laughs> Aren't we thankful that God is impartial? Uh, because if he played favorites, boy, it would just really uh, change the way we approached even the concept of religion altogether. Um, we'd be hoping to be on God's good side because he has preconceived notions of who's good and who's bad, and you know, hopefully you're born in the right place at the right time and he likes you. But instead, God is impartial. And Peter himself recognized this all the way back in Acts chapter 10. Do you remember... 
what Peter was used for in God's program as he was building the church. Uh, think back to when Peter was on the rooftop. What happened when Peter was on, on the rooftop? What did he see? Okay, the sheep. And what was on the sheep? Good, yeah. Clean and unclean animals. He was a Jew, so he knew what he could eat and what he couldn't eat. Leviticus 11 spells this out. You know, split the hoof, chew the cud, all that stuff. And so Peter saw these things, and, you know, God says, rise, kill, and eat. And he's saying, uh, wait a second. <laughs> I know you're God, but let's pump the brakes here, right? Uh, and, and the Lord told him what? Do you remember? Good, yeah. Yeah, the Lord was declaring things clean. And so Peter was to change his perspective. And so he goes out and he preaches the gospel to Gentiles. <laughs> and what did they do? And how, how, how did he know that they believed? Okay, uh, there were tongues. Yeah. They started speaking in tongues. And he said, okay, they've received the same Holy Spirit that we received when we first believed. And he goes on to say in chapter 10 of Acts, that's where this is all taking place, he goes on to say, I know that God is a God who does not show partiality, but that men from any nation who call on him will be saved. That's when it all clicked for Peter. So it's not just that he's writing this as a theory. He lived it, right? He saw it, that God is impartial. His offer of salvation has gone out to all. But it's not just the offer of salvation, it's also the judgment. It's both sides of that. He is impartial in his extension of salvation to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he's also impartial when it comes to judging. So there's no nation, no status, no tribe. They get special treatment at the judgment. Yes. Because we've known partial judges, haven't we? We've been partial judges, haven't we? <laughs> and we've overlooked certain flaws because of some preconceived notions. But God doesn't do that. He judges absolutely perfectly. Andy, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that um, Peter knew, and yet Paul had to call, call him out when, uh, when Judaism, I guess, were visiting. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, yep. He was showing them partiality, mm -hmm. and Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing? Yeah. Two of them, Paul would have been the more zealous as a, as a Jewish man before, mm -hmm. right? Taught by Gamaliel and Pharisee. Right. But he recognized that the partiality is it's sin. Yes. On our parts and on their parts, too. Yep, and there are several um, commands, imperatives given to the church about not showing favoritism. James 2 is another big one. The whole when someone rich comes into the assembly, don't, you know, clear out, oh, I sit here in this nice place, you know. And Proverbs says, don't show partiality to the poor either. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, either way. Now, it's so hard to do, and we're not going to be perfect, because the roots of partiality go deep, and we don't know where they all are. But we have to have that set before us as the constant goal, don't we? Okay. Um, now, this impartiality here, in this case, the impartiality of God, is being applied to his judgment specifically. If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So that's what Peter 
has in view here. And who's he talking about when he says each one, each one's deeds? Who are the people whose deeds are going to be judged by God impartially? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, who, who's, yeah, who's going to be judged? Whose deeds are going to be judged? Everyone's. Okay. <laughs> Everyone? Question mark. <laughs> well, yeah, um, he has in view, I mean, this is, he's talking to believers here, and so, why, you know, he's, he's mentioning this to them to put it in front of them. Everyone's deeds are going to be judged impartially, and uh, this is important to grasp, but let's think about what this could look like. There are really two options about what this could look like for the believer that Peter has in mind here, okay? What does it look like for the believer to have his deeds judged impartially by God? Well, the first um, option is that it's talking about present discipline, that throughout this life, as we live this life, we're having our deeds present tense judged by God in we're being disciplined by God throughout this life. And what that view has going for it from the text is that um, the word for judge here, who, the father who judges, that's present tense. It's not, it's not saying the father who will judge. It's talking present tense. So that's important to know. Um, though the word for judge is rarely used as discipline in the New Testament. So figure that out. But um, the idea is there, of course, throughout the New Testament that God does discipline his children, doesn't he? The ones whom he loves, he disciplines. That's what good fathers do. They extend discipline to their children. And we see that in several places. You think of 1 Corinthians 10 with the, uh, the communion passage. I'll, I'll flip over there and read it real quick. Um, it's talking about a very present and very swift discipline from God. If you partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 27, um, yeah, chapter 11, I must have mistyped there. 1 Corinthians, yeah, eleven twenty-seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Wow, that's a pretty heavy passage talking about present judgment and discipline, isn't it? And Hebrews 10 is another place where it talks about falling into the hands of God. It's talking to believers in Hebrews 10. If we go on sinning willfully after coming to a knowledge of the truth, you will receive a present judgment from God, a discipline from God. So it's quite possible, quite likely even, that Peter has that in mind. It's a very certain thing and it's a very mysterious thing in the life of a Christian to be present tense judged and disciplined by God. It works itself out in very mysterious ways, but we do experience it. We feel it. We're corrected. We're rebuked. Yep, we're getting there. Yep. Um, and, and if you look in 1 Peter here, chapter 4, verse 15, we'll get to this eventually. It talks about judgment in the church. 
It says, well, someone read, 15 to the end, 15 to 19 of chapter 4. Go ahead, Joseph. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. All right. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Now, Peter's speaking now during his time that we as the church are currently undergoing some sort of judgment from God. Um, so, again, it's a mysterious thing, but it's obviously a discipline from our Father because that's the relationship we have with Him. That's what's uh, really the foundation for all of Peter's instruction and, and everything he goes on to say in the letter is that we've been born again. God is now our Father. Our identity is obedient children. And going through this life as children, he's involved in such a way that he's not just there to be our genie and to rub us on the back and say everything's great, but he's a good father. He also disciplines, doesn't he? He's very involved in our lives. So uh, Peter's call to them is to consider this while they conduct themselves with fear throughout the time of their exile. There's a second option. That was just the first option. The second option is that this is in reference to the future judgment that this would be in reference to the Christian's future judgment. We talked about this in 1 Corinthians 3, also in 2 Corinthians 5, it's in Romans 14, that all Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and uh, we will be judged in the sense that our works will be put on the table and be tested by fire. Um, now, as Jim pointed out, that's not a judgment for condemnation. It's not the great white throne judgment. Your soul is never on the line after you're in Christ. <laughs> However, there's still a judgment for Christians, a future judgment. So there is a present tense judgment. And again, the word is in present tense here, which makes me think it's probably option one. Uh, but there's also a future judgment too. And we have other places in Scripture where Paul uses that future judgment to encourage Christians to live for the Lord now. Seek to please God. Walk in a manner worthy of God, seeking to please Him in all, in, in all respects. So that's got to be uh, in view too. Okay? Questions on that or comments. Would it be then the judgment from time, there's no condemnation, but a judgment for the things that we did not do, that we may have, should have done for Christ? Yes, yeah, so there are sins of omission and sins of commission, right? So sins of commissions are, are sins that we commit. Sins of omissions are the things that we should have done, but we omitted from our lives. Now, how detailed all of that gets in the judgment, we just don't know. Um, but we do need to know that there are those two types of sin, where you either sin by doing something you're not supposed to do, or you sin by neglecting to do something you have been called to do. And uh, that's between you and the Lord to get all that sorted out, I think, when it comes down to the fine details, the brass tacks. Lizzie, do you have a... So... Well, I think you're talking about in Matthew 19, where, um, right, yeah, um, 
Yeah, yeah, that one's more specific. So Tyler preached on that a while back now. It's been maybe three months. So look that up and listen to it. <laughs> that's, that's the best answer I can give right now. Sorry. Andy, did you have something too? That's First Corinthians three, yeah. as by fire. As by fire, yep. And when we burn, like some works will be burned like stubble. Yep. The ones that make it through the fire, I think the implication is that these are the things that were done for the Lord. Yes. With the right heart. Right? Yes, and then the reward will come. Right. However, that looks too. That's another thing we just don't all the details on, but yep. Yeah, sure. <laughs> In our book, we have We Fall Down, We Lay Our Crowns. At the, maybe we'll do that one next week. You know that one, right, Andy? Yeah. Who knows that song? We, we need to take polls before we do the songs. <laughs> if, if at least two-thirds doesn't know, we're not going to sing it. Uh, so. Okay, well, now we do need to answer the question, how does this knowledge give us fear? Because you see, that's Peter's uh, imploring them here to conduct themselves with fear throughout the time of exile. So if we take option one or option two, whichever... Uh, again, I think it's option one, God's discipline in our lives. How does that tie into conducting ourselves in or with fear? Well, there are three other times in this book where Peter uses that word. It's the word where we get phobia. It's the same word. It's phobos. Um, it's used three different times as respect in the book of First Peter. So First Peter 3, where it talks about wives Trying, seeking to win over their husbands, they are to conduct themselves with phobos. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, dread in the same way that you would dread a big F5 tornado headed toward your house, something like that, but it certainly has the idea of respect and reverence tied to it. It really is a worship word as we consider what we've been called to do as Christians, which is worship God with all of our being. We must revere Him. We must fear Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. When you think of uh, in the book of Exodus, when God came down on the mountain and He gave the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel, you think they feared the Lord after that? But in a sense, though, wasn't He also the one who loved them and chose them and was acting as their father? And so we want to pit these two ideas against each other, <laughs> but they really go hand in hand. We must have an awe and reverence for our Father, who is the great and mighty God who saves. You can write down as a reference if you're taking notes, 2 Corinthians 7.1. It's a great cross-reference for this. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's the Christian's calling. It says to perfect holiness, to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. That has to be set before us as our daily devotion. And you can think of a child who fears disobeying daddy. Those are your favorite kids, right? <laughs> the ones who have a fear of disobeying. Yeah. But isn't it sweet, though, when a child... Is, has a healthy fear of being disobedient to the authority that God has placed 
in his or her life. And it's not that, okay, as soon as the child slips up, now, well, find a different place to live, kid. You're done here, right? (laughs) Some of you parents have really put up with a lot for a long time, right? So it's not that the father or the mother is demanding perfection. And that's certainly what, you know, God isn't saying, okay, Christian, as soon as you sin, you're not mine anymore. You're gone. That's not it. (laughs) Correct. Correct. So we're not to be afraid in that sense, but we are to be living our lives with a reverent fear, knowing that He is our Father, and we want to obey Him. We desire to obey, and we fear disobeying our dad, but forsaking is not on the line. God isn't saying, I will forsake you if you slip up. So for the persecuted, um, you remember Peter's writing to persecuted Christians, This fear had to override all other fears. Think of all the fears they had in their lives. (laughs) Having to pick up and move and go to Asia Minor and constantly enduring various trials. There were things to fear day in and day out. But this fear had to squash all the other fears, the fear of God, the basic understanding of who God is and who we are. But this is all, again, knowing that we have been redeemed by Christ and God doesn't do returns. He doesn't look to exchange. He doesn't purchase us and then say, okay, I want my money back. That's not it. He purchased us once for all that we would be reconciled to him. Now conduct yourselves in fear as obedient children. Andy? I was just going to say, fear of forsaking is not part of it, but the living God that can see our motives and everything in our hearts and his discipline Yeah. He's in us and he's all around us. Yeah. He he does it all perfectly. So good. So yeah, I do a little bit of fear here there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not just reverence fear. Yes. Right. And Romans 1. If, yeah. And that's Romans 1, right? Being given over. So, yes, discipline. And it even says in Hebrews, we don't like it. <laughs> we don't like it when it happens. But it's less like, you know, eating steamed broccoli or cauliflower or whatever it is you don't like. You know, think about it. It's eating something like that. Um, that in the moment, it's not pleasant, but it's so good for us and it is reassuring. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. But you said not like the knowledge of God like brings us like reverence for God or like Yeah. Well once we once we become God's children, once he adopts us and makes us his children, um, there is a fear that he imparts to us. Um I don't think anyone comes to know the Lord without having a measure of fear. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Fear is the beginning of understanding. Um, so that happens initially in our hearts that God imparts, that he, he does that to us. And then as we go on living this life, we are to conduct ourselves in that fear. 
we are to be reminded of who God is and who we are constantly. For instance, when I got saved, the man who was my first mentor used to constantly tell me, you know, there's just two things you need to know. There is a God and you're not him sort of thing. And this is under the umbrella of the gospel, okay? He's not saying just generally there's a God. But, um, but that's the constant reminder we need is that there is a creator and we are creatures. We are not the creator. And now we've been made his children. He's not just our creator. He's also our father. And so that relationship that we have to God, it should affect our relationship to everything else. So, okay. Um, 20 and 21. He was foreknown, talking about Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, verses 17 to 21, that's one sentence in the Greek. This is just one sentence that Peter wrote. You think, I write long sentences. Uh, That's a long sentence. And uh, here he's closing out the sentence by putting the focus on the one who redeemed us. Who was the one that ransomed us? Well, Jesus the Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That means in eternity past. He was foreknown. The Father and Son have been in eternal relationship. They've been in eternal covenant with one another when it comes to salvation. Um, They have been in perfect harmony. They are one. Jesus said, I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And remember, the context of all this is our salvation. Go back to verses 1 and 2, the very opening of the letter, where Peter says, He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with His blood. So God chose us from the beginning, and we see in Scripture that He chose us in Christ. Ephesians 1, He chose us in Him. So as we think about our salvation and we think about eternity past, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And where were we? We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So the the depth of our salvation or the root of our salvation goes all the way back to eternity past where the Father chose us in Christ who was foreknown. They have been in relationship and perfect harmony for all eternity. And we have been there in the mind of God in Christ because in his sovereign grace, he chose us for salvation. That's delightful. That's a chocolate-covered strawberry, right? Uh, That's just really, really nice, really decadent. How could you ever fret knowing those things, huh? (laughs) It's good stuff. Yes. Yes. You have never been outside of the mind of God. Isn't that amazing? And your salvation, though, of course, it happened in time, and there was a time you were apart from God where you were a child of wrath and you were following the prince of the power of the air, just like the rest of mankind. That all happened in time. But from God's perspective, there's never been a time that your salvation was in question. Now, we experience that because here we are in time as creatures. 
God doesn't live that way. He exists outside of time. There's never been a time where you've been in question because you've been in Christ in His mind, and Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. (laughs) How's that for eternal security? Goes all the way back, goes all the way forward. And that's really what Peter's getting at here is that we are utterly secure in Christ. Well, let's keep reading before we get to that point. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, for the sake of you. He came, Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to build his church. This was not theoretical. Jesus didn't come and die with the idea that maybe some people would believe and maybe his church would be built. He came because this was certainly going to happen. It was a certain ordeal, foregone conclusion, because this is in the mind of God. It's playing out in time. He was glorifying himself by doing what? Making believers. He came for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. (laughs) So he comes ransoming his people, building his church, making believers out of unbelievers, transferring people from the domain of darkness into light, taking slaves of sin, making them slaves to righteousness, absolutely certain. This is the eternal plan of God, the eternal counsel of his will. It can't be overturned. It can't be brought into question. It's absolutely certain. And Jesus is the necessary person for there to be believers in God, isn't he? There's no such thing as a believer in God outside of Jesus Christ. Because we see right here in verse 21 that it's through Him that we are believers in God. Someone wants to say, I'm a believer in God, but rejects Jesus. That person isn't a believer in God. It's through Jesus you're a believer of God. And God has demonstrated this to us. He made it very plain that it's through Jesus. Because what does it go on to say? He raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. So you're going to say you're a believer of God, but you reject the one who raised from the dead and was given glory. You're not a believer in God. So it's only through Jesus that we are believers in God. Hebrews 1 talks about this too. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's absolutely finished. And this was all so that, when you see so that in Scripture, remember it denotes purpose. You highlight that. What's the purpose of all this? So that your faith and hope are in God. Absolutely secure. Your faith and your hope are in God. He's planned it. He's done it. He's made it. It's been certain. can never be questioned. can never be reversed. God doesn't make returns. Those whom He purchases, He keeps forever because it's tied to His eternal plan of redemption. And the Father and Son have been in perfect harmony in this. Isn't it great? It's really good news. And if you were being persecuted, even if you're not being persecuted, but you can think, first century being persecuted, you need this, don't you? You need to hear this because there are constant fears brought before you each and every day. And you know what this is like too. Everybody, we have these different fears each and every day. But knowing all of this, now conduct yourselves in fear in this life. Not in fear of all the things that are going on around you, but the only fear that matters, fearing God. The one who came down on the mountain with smoke and thunder and gave the Ten Commandments. The one who created all things. And the one who's your daddy. He's going to impartially judge. And you're safe in Christ. All good things. 
Lizzie. I have a question. Yeah. Ephesians 2.10, yep. We won't be judged by our good deeds. All of our deeds will be judged. Yeah, so I think it's, Rome, it's the Romans 14 passage, I believe. Let's see. It's either Romans 14 or 2 Corinthians 5. They're both verse 10s. Um, no, it's 2 Corinthians 5 one. Sorry. One moment. 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says... For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each, may, each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, good and evil, all placed on the, the docket there to be judged. So, um, when it comes to the status of your soul and your eternal resting place, all you have is the righteousness of Christ. You're exactly right. Second, or it's uh, Philippians 3.9. Um, you have a righteousness not of your own, not derived from the law, but given to you from Christ. So the only reason you can go to heaven is because you have that righteousness. Yet, from the moment that righteousness was applied to you until your final breath, that span of life you live here on earth, there's a lifetime worth of deeds that in some way is going to be judged by God. Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 3, perhaps 1 Peter 1. Um, we have these texts that say, look, there's going to be a, a judgment for Christians. Again, not for where your soul goes. This isn't, are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? It's not that. But this is placing the deeds on the altar, burning it up and seeing what remains. That's the imagery 1 Corinthians 3 gives. And there's a little poem out there, only one life, it'll soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. As we go to the judgment, only that which remains is that which was done for Christ. And on the basis of that, there are rewards given, and we don't know how all that plays out, but that's what's been revealed to us. Okay. Other thoughts or questions as we close? Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, you might just say that, like, Jesus was given the payments of God, right? It's like, we sin against God, and so it's him that we have this debt, right? You came from heaven to earth to show the way, from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. <laughs> yeah, so in that sense, totally, there's, then again, Colossians 2, the... The certificate of debt we had, God has set it aside, it says, having nailed it to the cross. So, yes, the Son, in that sense, was making a payment for our sins, taking care of our sins. Yeah. But, but there's a different way that it's talked about, our salvation's talked about. It's talked about in several different ways, because several different things happened when we got saved. <laughs> it's not just that... Um, Jesus paid our debt and we're forgiven, though that's true. There's more. We were transferred from one kingdom to another, right? So there are other passages that talk about it from that angle. And what we see is that different passages talk about it from different angles, and uh, we just accept the truths that are in all of them and not try to pigeonhole or extrapolate some big theory out of one of them and say that's exactly the way it is. But we know that he was in our place bearing the wrath of God that we deserved and that we were ransomed.
those, those two things have happened. And we can't say he paid Satan. That's nowhere in Scripture. Um, but there was an idea where we were ransomed. We became his slave. Buying Christ back. Yeah, like, uh, I know they were like never totally separated except for. Right, Who's they? Father and son? Yes, yes. But like, he was here on earth. Bad. <laughs> abort mission, Stacy, abort. <laughs> Don't pump the brakes, slam the brakes. It's bad line of reasoning. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good to think through stuff. Yeah, because, I mean, you do have. You know, again, every theory has a verse or whatever. So you have the idea of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And people have taken that and have made all kinds of strange applications of that. So, yeah, we just have to be careful. Lizzie. I want to try an illustration. Okay. Okay, so you know how, like, in Esther, like, the king, um, whatever his... Artaxerxes? Yeah, so his side kid, oh. he made him write this, like... Oh, are you talking about Esther's uh, uncle or? Yeah, more. Um, so like, I thought maybe you were jumping to John three, the uh, yeah, Nicodemus. Right, okay, so, so I think if we're looking just to use it as a mere illustration, perhaps there's that could be a good route to go. We just need to be careful of saying this is an allegory for what Jesus has done, right? Because Scripture never says that this is explaining what's going to happen in the gospel. But this contract that Jesus is, that Jesus, the, what happened in the beginning of good and evil. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be careful when you feel like you're stretching. That's a, pay attention to that uh, little voice that says you're stretching. So, um, but yeah, I mean, but certainly there are things that we can use as illustrations. Um, we just have to be careful. So that's good. Use that noggin. Okay, Logan, then Jim. Then we got to stop. So in order to, uh, somebody has to ask for the payment, right? And we know that wasn't Satan. We know that like all through the Old Testament, God uh, allowed them to kill the lamb in payment, right? He instructed them to make sacrifices, yes. Right. Yep. And so it was all pointing towards the perfect Yep. Human yep. That went and did the payment. Yep. And so ultimately, it was going back to God. The payment. Right. Yeah. Hebrews nine talks about this that there's um, the blood of goats and bulls. You know, couldn't provide an ultimate payment for sins. But how much more will the sacrifice of Christ, offered through the eternal Spirit, uh, cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. It's good. Jim. I'm just saying. Still thinking of it as a payment, like silver. Yeah, I mean, there's not a, there's no one receiving except, it, yeah. except justice is met. Yeah, yeah, there's not, uh, Scripture's not putting the emphasis on anyone receiving the payment, so I kind of regret ever bringing it up, but the, uh, <laughs> but the emphasis, but the emphasis is on we are now the slaves of Christ, he's our master, he's purchased us, right? He wasn't our master before in the sense that we are now slaves to him.
uh, that did, there's something that changed. When you got saved, you became a slave to Christ in a way that you weren't before. That's the emphasis of the message, okay? But also for the receiving of eternal life. Eternal life, good. We'll end it with that. <laughs> you want to pray for us, Logan?